Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 253, where we interview Adam Zaleski and talk about designing the life you want to live. And so for me, um, you know, there were a few people in my smaller circle that saw the value in that, saw it as a good thing, but I would say nine out of 10 people would say, don't do that. That's a bad idea. You need to take the, take the more money, go to DC, you know, don't go to Florida for 40 because it's horrible in Florida right now that the houses are selling for nothing. And you're like, yeah, that, that's the point. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And from time to time, Scott's schedule is just too jam-packed to record with me. Rather than miss a week, I'm bringing in some of my friends to help me out. Today's guest host is Jay Scott. You know him from all over Bigger Pockets, from our fantastic episode 70, where I predicted the stock market crash of 2020 almost to the day, and our epic episode 219, where he educated us for two solid hours, two of the fastest hours I have ever spent on real estate syndications. Pretty much absolutely everything you need to know in is in that show. So, Jay, thank you for picking up Scott's flag. Can we go back to the point where you called me your friend? Jay's my friend. I like that. <laughs> You're bringing your friends on. Oh, I'm bringing that's my so friends sweet. on, but they were all busy, so I called Jay. Oh, okay. There. Now, now we're back to where I expected to be. Jay. How you doing, Mindy? I'm good, Jay. How are you? I am doing great. I'm excited to be here. I think it's the first time I've co-hosted this show. This is awesome. This was a lot of fun. Well, it, I, I'm sorry. This will be a lot of fun. We always record the intro after we record the show, so we know what we talked about. Jay and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else. To introduce you to every money story, because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone no matter when or where you're starting. Yep. And whether you want to retire early, whether you want to travel the world, whether you want to go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate or start your own business, we're going to help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards your dreams. Jay, I am super excited for today's episode. We are talking to Adam, who is a, I call him a teacher. He is actually a professor. But when you say professor, it makes it sound like he's making oodles and oodles and oodles of money. And he is basically doing all of the stuff that you're about to hear on a teacher's salary. He's not making six figures when he is doing all of this fantastic investing that he's, he's really created a life that he wants to live and I love his thought process and the way he thinks about money in in terms of what it can get you as opposed to how much do you have. Yeah. I mean, he's he's a teacher or professor by trade, um, but I like to think of him after this discussion. He's really, he's a financial and lifestyle engineer. He's figured out how to make really good decisions, um, both from his uh, personal life and his financial life, and bring them together to give him basically the last, I guess, 10 years since since he's been out of school and 30 years since he's been an adult, um, to figure out how to live this life that's everything he wants for him, for his wife, for his family, at the same time, building a nest egg inching closer, not inching, but like taking big giant leaps closer to financial freedom. And so he's not sacrificing his lifestyle for money and he's not sacrificing money for his lifestyle. He's really figured out how to have it all. And in this episode, he talks to us and gives us great uh, actionable tips for how we can do the same thing. Yeah. He is really amazing in his story. And I just, I love the way that you, he, I, I love the way that he 
shifts the way that he's looking at things a little bit and a whole new world opens up. He's made some really, really smart decisions and I cannot wait to bring him in to tell you all about them. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. It's Military Appreciation Month, so I'd like to personally thank all our past guests who have served and all our listeners who are serving, deployed, veterans, or in the reserves. But I'm not the only one showing appreciation. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond with exclusive rates, discounts, and tools. This month, join Navy Federal and get $50 when you open a credit card. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. With 24-7 U.S.-based member service and resources for veterans transitioning to civilian life, Navy Federal is here to help you reach your goals. Head to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Disclaimer, must join an open membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. Annual percentage yield 0.25% for membership savings account. $5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions. Adam Zaleski, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my story. I want to jump right into it because I know we have a lot to cover. Where does your journey with money begin? Um, so I grew up in the Midwest, uh, middle class, suburbs of Chicago. Um, you know, pretty normal. Um, the only thing that might have been a little bit different was my parents got divorced when I was seven. And I kind of noticed that money got a little bit tight uh, during that time because, you know, pretty normal stuff like, you know, you had one household and then there was a split and now there's two households. So um, my parents were kind of learning how to adjust on uh, same amount of income, but like higher expenses. And so there was kind of like a lot of money fights, you know, nothing um, like horrific, but it just wasn't fun. There was a lot of complaining. Eventually they figured it out and um, they both got remarried when I was probably 12. And at that point, then all the money conversations kind of went away again. But um, but there was five years, there was a lot of bickering about money. And as a kid, I just didn't think it was fun. So I kind of made like an internal pledge to myself. You know, when I was a kid, I was like, I don't want to be in that position where I'm constantly complaining about, about money because it's just simply not fun. Yeah, I, I know when uh, I, I went through my parents divorcing when I was very young as well. And it was always that weird thing to watch different money habits, different money discussions. Um, well, one side of the family was no money discussions. The other side of the family was kind of more complaining about money. Um, but I grew up very conflicted 
about how I should be viewing money because I never got a consistent message from from my parents because they were kind of separated and remarried. Um, how did that impact ultimately your take on money moving forward? I mean, I know that my childhood, how I how I saw my parents dealing with money had a huge impact on me moving forward. How did that impact you once you got to the age where you were independent and kind of on your own with money? Um, that's a great question. Um, that did have an impact on me because kind of what happened was, is my mom, it's just, just cultural. Um, when she remarried, uh, she kind of uh, she remarried into somebody who was kind of into the corporate lifestyle, climbing the corporate ladder. Uh, he was an engineer. Um, he he was a um, part owner, had equity in a small engineering firm. And then my dad's side was um, a pipe fitter, uh, construction worker. My whole dad's side of the family were construction workers, and it was kind of like the white collar versus blue collar. And um, one's not right or wrong, but it's just very different. And um, uh, both sides have their own set of unique challenges. And um, what the conclusion that I came to is like, everyone's got problems. <laughs> and um, I, I really didn't identify with either group. And that actually had a big uh, impact on me in searching for something different. So the white collar side, um, face value, it looked you know, pretty, pretty fancy. But um, there was long commutes. Um, my people in my hometown, they lived about an hour outside of Chicago. So very long commutes into the city, very long commutes out of the city. And then for my dad's side, uh, when you worked overtime, that was a good thing. They were union construction workers. And, you know, they would brag about working 50, 60 hour weeks because that was good money. But as a kid, I'm like, I, I, I don't want to brag about working 60 hour weeks. I want to brag about working 30 hour weeks. Like the idea that you would brag about 60 hour weeks just didn't resonate with me. So I saw these two paths and I actually didn't like either one of them. And so I decided I got to find out my own path and I have no idea what that is. I love that. I love that. So um, when you, I guess, got out of school, when you were ready to go off on your own, uh, what was your plan? Like you, you said, you want to find your own path, but what was that path when you were young, when you first got out of school, and how did that evolve as you as you matured and got older? Um, so I guess just skip ahead to then maybe like high school. Uh, mostly B's. Didn't love high school. Didn't hate it. Um, wasn't super motivated for college, um, but I was decent at baseball. I got a small baseball scholarship to play Division II baseball. Wasn't great, but I was good. And um, really, baseball is what got me into college. Um, otherwise, I don't know if I would have been motivated enough to do it. Um, and so, but when I got to college, I absolutely loved it because it wasn't like high school, at least my experience. And it just, there wasn't a lot of micromanaging. They kind of like, um, empowered you, you know, if you do the work, you do great. If you don't, you get an F. And so I love that. I love the challenge and I love being challenged. And so I ended up taking college a lot more seriously than I took high school. And I kind of gravitated towards, um, education and then, but Baseball was still there. Uh, I played a couple years of college baseball. Um, once I kind of wasn't getting better and I realized I wasn't going to be a major leaguer, then baseball kind of faded out. And then I got even more serious about my academics. And um, I do I kind of consider myself to be a first-generation college student because nobody in my family had gone to college. However, my stepdad did, but he didn't really enter our lives until much later on. So my stepdad did technically graduate from college, but nobody else in my entire extended family had. So I'm, I was pretty much the first one. 
and everything was, was kind of new. Uh, I liked it. I was a psych major. People would ask me, what do you want to do with it? I'm like, I have no idea. Um, but I really liked the critical thinking aspect of psychology. There's a lot of problem solving in that major. And I know that it doesn't really guarantee you a job when you graduate, but you become a really good um, critical thinker. And I think that will stay with you your whole life um, as your jobs change. Yeah, I love the fact that you seem to to really figure out all of these things early on. You figured out, one, you, you didn't want to work the 60-hour weeks. You figured out early that you wanted to be financially free. You figured out early that uh, how important it was to have those critical thinking skills, regardless of what your ultimate job would be. I mean, I know these are a lot of lessons that I'm I'm old right now, and I... And barely learning at this age, uh, let alone when I was a, a teenager. So that, that's really great. Uh, Mindy, you were about to ask something. I'm sorry I cut you off. Oh, no, your your opinion is just as valid as mine, Jay. I was going to ask him what his financial position was leaving college. You had a small scholarship, but it sounds like you also had some. Right. Um, so, yeah, I'll go over college costs. I think I did pretty well with that. Um, so my very first year, I got a baseball scholarship and an academic scholarship. So tuition was basically free, but I did have to pay to be in the dorms. Um, I did not pay that. My parents did. Um, so I did get some help in college. Then I actually went to community college. So I went from the, I did one year in the Midwest um, and then I moved out to California and um, I did two years of community college. Um, the first year it was $120 a unit because uh, it was out of state. So it was about, you know, 1800 bucks a semester. But then my next year, when I got in-state tuition, it went down to $12 a unit. <clears throat> so it was like 150 bucks a semester, and then um, which was a lot cheaper. Um, and then I transferred to San Diego State, uh, and this was around year 2000, uh, and it was $900 a semester. And the way that they do it there is um, technically the tuition is free, but it's $900 a semester in fees. I, I'm sure that fee is higher now. I don't know what it is today, but it was essentially $900 fee a semester. And then I did that for two and a half years. And so when I graduated, I had about $7,000 worth of student loan debt, which is some, but not, um, you know, but not terribly, you know, horrible, I don't think. Why was tuition free? Um, I don't, logistically, California originally when it was founded, tuition was free. And so when I was going there, when you get your bill, it says tuition zero and it says fee 900. And this could be much <laughs> a, a very much larger um, conversation about higher education, but it's very difficult to get a tuition increase passed, but it's very easy to get a fee increase passed. So it gets really complicated now for parents when they look at the tuition and then they realize that there might be $4,000 in fees, you know, added on to to that. So that part's a little bit, a little bit tricky. Interesting. I, I yeah. we, we skipped over one thing that I always, I like to ask when I'm talking to people about their money journeys, because I think this ultimately has uh, a big role in how they think about money later in life. What was your first job? Um, oh yeah. So I was a caddy at uh, 13 years old. I worked a lot as a kid. So 13, 14, 15, um, I carried bags for rich people um, you know, on the golf course. And that was a good experience. I loved being outside. Then I worked at a California pizza kitchen. I worked at Blockbuster, you know, um, and, uh, and then I also did in the summers, a lot of my dad's side of the family was in construction. So it helped a lot with, you know, I did plumbing, roofing, um, excavating, you know, whenever they were busy and needed help, I would kind of fill in and, and do a lot of that stuff. 
And again, working those summers was fine doing construction on like a small time, but like once it, once it was 40 hours a week, I just, I just didn't, it was, I didn't like it. So. Okay. So, so it's interesting. You, you aspired to be lazy and only work 30 hours a week, but at the same time, you weren't scared to really work hard. I mean, right. being a caddy, working in a restaurant, those the working construction. Okay. So right. let's fast forward. You, you get out of college, you've got a little bit of debt. Um, you've mm-hmm. got about 7,000, well, little, a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it's all mm-hmm. relative. Um, I had a lot more when I got out of college. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, tell it, take us, take us back to right out of college. Like what, what did you do next and what were you thinking? So I guess two things, um, right before I graduated college, my mom did give me a copy of rich dad, poor dad. And, um, that was a life changer for me. It was a mindset thing. And it's so weird how many people say that on this show. And I thought I was like, I know it's a bestseller, but I'm like, man, people really reference that. So I felt immediately connected to this group and this podcast because I kind of went through the same experience, you know, 20 years ago. Um, And then I also had a professor that went through the whole like exponential growth thing and he did a graph and, um, you know, humans think in more linear terms and it's very difficult to think exponentially. And so he was a geology professor. He was in his late sixties. And basically in the last day of class, he kind of told the whole class like, Hey, I'm not here to brag, but I'm worth about $10 million, you know, and I don't have to work, but I work here because I like it. And he said, my biggest piece of advice to you is essentially, you know, find something that you enjoy, find something that you love. If you want more money, just figure out a way to invest and make more money that way. Don't make more money at your job, make more money through investments. So pick your job on what you want to do. And then if you're, if you want more money, do it in other ways, but don't try to do it through your job because then you might end up having something that you like, and then you ruin it for yourself because you put too many hours into it. I love that. I love that because what is it like the amount of money that you'll make over the course of your salaried life is nothing compared to the amount of money you can make if you just invest consistently, small amounts, medium amounts, large amounts. In the stock market, in mm-hmm. income generating assets like real estate. Yep. Um, so then to answer your question before I forget it, so then come out of college, I was like, okay, I want to be a professor. I know I'm not going to make a lot of money, but um, I read rich, rich Dad, Poor Dad. I could do rental houses. And basically, I want a job as a professor. I want four rental houses. Then they're going to be worth $250,000 a piece, and I'm going to have a million dollars of real estate, which won't make me rich, but it'll be give me enough money to do the travel that I want to do. Um, so like with the teachers, you know, they have the time to do the travel, but they don't have the money, right? And then the corporate people have the money to do the travel, but then they don't have the time. So how do you get both? And so my recipe was get a job as a professor and then have a few rental houses to pay for the travel that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Okay. So coming out of college, you have $7,000 in debt. Mm-hmm. You have a job. We didn't talk about your job. What You graduate college. What's mm-hmm. next? So basically, I took a year and a half off. Um, I studied for the GREs. Um, to, I had to score well enough to get into graduate school. I did a year in Breckenridge. I was a snowboard bum. Um, I got 123 days of snowboarding in as a snowboard instructor. That was a lot of fun. And then um, I'm, so now I'm 24, and I get accepted to a master's program in general experimental psychology in California. And uh, I did that for two years. And then after that, I did a PhD at Colorado State, um, Fort Collins. And I did that for another five years. So then basically, I did seven years of graduate school after undergrad, um, which is not a short amount of time. Um, So I basically 
I uh, lived on 15 grand. Well, actually, no, I lived more like on 20. My salary was 15. And so I did the difference with loans. So on average, I was taking out five to $7,000 a year in loans. So then when I graduated from my PhD, I added on about 50. So then I was totally done with college. I had about 57,000 student loan debt. And at that point, you're about 30 years old? Uh, 32. So you're 32. So most people get out of college with debt and, well, they go one of two directions. They either get a job and and get further into debt because they don't handle money well, um, or they use that time at a school to kind of shore up their finances and and make things better. Um, You're about seven or eight years out of undergrad. You're in your early 30s, and you're basically just getting started in your financial journey um, from about a negative $50,000 starting point. So, so kind of, so, um, so what I did was, is, you know, looking forward. So I kind of saw that as my future and I said, I got to do something before I graduate. So part of the, cause I was actually in California at the time when I was in my master's program and I really did want to stay in California, but it just didn't make sense for me, uh, as a graduate student, cause the cost of housing was so high. So I made a con- I luckily I had a choice of a few different programs. Uh, but I chose Cal State or uh, Cal, uh, Colorado State University um, for Collins because the housing was cheaper, and so I actually bought a four-bedroom house near campus, and then I had three roommates to pay for the mortgage. So basically, I house hacked through my PhD. So I was technically at zero um, when I did leave, but um, but I had a house, and so um, going, I kind of called my wife and double checked, but. Basically, when I left, I think I was about plus 20,000, and then she was about negative 20,000. And so we were basically at zero when I left graduate school, and then we uh, moved to Florida for my first job. See, I heard that a different way, Jay. I heard him say that he got through a master's pro, a a doctorate program with $60,000, 50 or $60,000 in debt because we hadn't talked about the house yet. And I'm like, that people are leaving four years of college with fifty or sixty thousand dollars in debt. He did like eighty years of college for fifty or sixty thousand. So <laughs> it's math. I'm not going to do the right sure. math, but, and, but so you're you're like in my book, you're ahead. Yeah, you haven't started really saving much money, but you're so far ahead because you're already at the end of your. I mean, a doctorate program. I don't know if you know this, Adam, but that's a big deal. Yeah. So um, in my doctorate program, I got a PhD in applied social psychology and I studied social influence. Uh, We also called social norms. And that probably has the most relevant um, uh, piece of information for me going forward. And, um, you know, we're social animals, we're social creatures, we kind of do what everybody else does. And then a lot of times it makes a lot of sense. But I kind of my area of expertise was using social norms to try to guide behavior for health behaviors and for environmental behaviors, try to get people to drink a little bit less, try to get people to not smoke so much, try to get people to turn off their lights when they leave, um, try to do all these environmental and health things. But I kind of found interest in economics because it applies very much to supply and demand. You know, basically as humans, we're wired to buy high and sell low because when everyone else is buying something, it makes it uh, you know, so the price goes up because everybody wants it. And so we as humans feel comfortable when we buy something that's like really, really expensive, um, which is kind of the complete opposite of what you actually want to do. So then when I left um, Colorado, uh, I moved to Florida and this was 2011. Well, in around that time, there was a housing crisis going on and Florida, um, 
you know, took it on the chin. They really, the prices were extremely suppressed. And out of all the jobs that I could apply to, you know, this salary was probably one of the lowest salaries that, that there was. So it was, you know, uh, $40,000. Um, I didn't quite have my PhD yet because I was leaving ABD, which is pretty normal. But basically it was, uh, you know, I had a PhD training and I was expected to get it soon. And, but the problem that the reason I moved to Florida was because of the housing opportunity. And so I was willing to take less salary to buy a house, you know, at a discount and get into a house right away versus go somewhere else that's, you know, a lot more expensive, you know, with a higher salary. I, I love the fact that you're now in your early 30s and um, and you're just finishing up school. But as we talked about, you learned all these great lessons, money lessons as a teen. And then in your 20s, even without like working a full time job, starting your career, you learned probably the most important lesson of all, which is the value of investing and the value of building investments for the future, um, as opposed to. Uh, what I like to refer to as just transactional money, uh, trading your time for money. You realize that, yeah, you're going to go through your life trading your time for money, um, but then you need to also be investing your money to make more money, your your passive income. And so it's a great lesson to learn in your 20s, especially given the fact that you weren't yet working a full-time job and you hadn't even left college. So I'm really excited to find out what, <laughs> what you learned in your 30s and, 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 sure. and later. So then real quick, so then um, it was... In November 2010, I interviewed for a job in Washington, D.C. at a nonprofit. And the goal was to get a job as an academic, but it was to be a researcher at a nonprofit. And the economy wasn't doing that great in 2010, 2011. So I was like trying to expand my options. You know, the goal was to be a job as a professor, but just in case it doesn't work out, I should probably like apply to other things. And so I went to D.C. They loved me and they offered me the job and the job offer was 67000 uh, four weeks vacation immediately, um, and then like a 4% um, uh, match or whatever. And But I went to D.C., and I was kind of talking to the guy, and I said, I look at the housing prices, and, you know, there's a, there's a housing recession going on uh, in America. I don't see it in D.C. He said, yeah, D.C. is fairly uh, recession-proof because our largest employer, the federal government, uh, continues to hire even through recessions. And so I was kind of talking to him about it. I'm like, there's no housing discount here. He's like, nope. You know, you pretty much got to pay full price, um, even though you can get a huge discount everybody else. So basically, it was kind of a, a little bit of a turnoff, um, even though it was a decent salary. I was kind of like trying to project my life out five years into the future. I didn't really see myself buying a house there. It was out of my price range. Um, and I saw myself renting. And I saw myself essentially five years not really having a lot of investments and not having a lot to show for it. So ultimately I turned it down and most of my friends and family thought I was totally nuts because there was kind of, there weren't a lot of jobs and you just turn something down like very reasonable. But at the end of the day, it wasn't what I wanted. So uh, I'm sorry, let's go back for a second. You moved to Florida instead of DC or you were in Florida so just, and then looking for other options. So I just wanted to mention right before I moved to Florida, before I actually got the job offer in Florida, I was offered a job in DC uh, for 67000 and I turned it down. And then ultimately, I took a job in Florida for 40000 And at the end of the day, that was a much better decision for me. So what were housing prices in D.C.-ish, and what, what did you buy in Florida? You know what? In D.C., I really didn't pay much attention because the numbers were just so high. I just was like, you know, I just can't do this. Um, 
And um, when I moved to Florida, I remember what those numbers are because I was really excited about it. And so basically, I bought a three-bedroom, two-bath home, you know, two-car garage, uh, 1,750 square feet, and I bought it for 95000 And it did need some rehab, but it was mostly cosmetic. And there were tons of them that were available. And I could actually pick and choose on the one that I wanted. And so I assume that was going to be your personal residence? Correct. Correct. And, and did you, you had mentioned earlier that your plan was eventually to have a million dollars worth of, of investment property. Were you thinking that you were going to buy investment property in Florida as well? Had you already started thinking about it at that point? Um, I think the plan was, yeah, to buy that as my primary residence. And then I think live there for a couple of years and then move out of it and then try to buy another one as a primary residence. I think that was kind of the plan moving there. And um, so then for my job, it was 40000 But as far as the fringe benefits go, it was an 8% match on the salary. Florida doesn't have any state income tax. Um, my health insurance was only 50 bucks a month. And then um, I could, my commute was 10 minutes. And so... Uh, with all those things, you know, I know that the number 67 is higher than 40, but based on my situation, um, you know, 40 was way better than than 67. And I think in, in psychology, we talk about money being secondary. It's not primary. So it's not the actual dollar value of the money. It's what it's associated with that gives its value. So 40 in Florida was way more than 67 in D.C. for me. Interesting. And so that's that's a really interesting mind shift. And I think, again, something that I've started to realize later in life, um, but you don't necessarily think about when you're in your early 30s and right out of school, um, you started to recognize that not only were there um, uh, their lifestyle decisions that factored in or lifestyle uh, factors that, that factored in, um, but also that your job provides other benefits besides your salary. Um, and when you think about those benefits, a lot of times they can either um, uh, overshadow the salary or at least compensate enough for the salary that makes it a better decision than some other job in some other location. Um, so so talk to us about, you, you said you kind of moved to, to Florida and you didn't have a plan yet. Well, at some point, you must be putting together a plan because it sounds like you're thinking about these. So uh, at what point did you say, okay, here's my plan to get down to that that teenage goal of 30 hours a week and financial freedom? Um, yeah, so um, I think I was kind of uh, headed in the right direction. It wasn't a rental house yet, but the goal was to buy it as a primary residence and then later turn it into a rental house. Um, I only had to put 5% down. So 5% down on 95000 is you know not that much. Um, and then the renovations were about 16,000. Um, I lived there for four years and, um, basically the plan was to move on to the next job eventually and then rent that out. And I guess maybe one thing I did forget to mention when I was moving down to Florida, um, because the housing market was suppressed, um, and I was telling people my plan, you know, I'm going to take a job for 40,000. I'm going to, I'm going to buy a house in Florida. There's just like, you're crazy. Like, that's not a good idea. And, but again, I think that's how the uh, humans think. And because the housing market is so bad, they're seeing all these things on TV. Oh, it's crashing. You know, it's horrible. Well, yeah, but if you're a buyer, that's a good thing. Right. And it's very difficult for people to, you know, take that mental hurdle that it's actually a good thing and, and not a bad thing. And so for me, um, 
you know, there were a few people in my smaller circle that saw the value in that, saw it as a good thing, but I would say nine out of 10 people would say, don't do that. That's a bad idea. You need to take the, take the more money, go to DC, you know, don't go to Florida for 40 because you know, it's horrible in Florida right now that the houses are selling for nothing. And you're like, yeah, that that's the point. Well, and I can see somebody saying, oh, but the houses in DC, let's call them 200,000. Let's just say they're twice as much as the Florida houses. They're going to be worth twice as much. Well, no, your $200,000 DC house is not necessarily going to appreciate at the same rate as your $95,000 Florida house. And Mm -hmm. like Jay said, to have this mindset when you're in your early 30s and just having gotten out of college is incredible because I bet that house is worth more than 95,000 right now. Yeah. So today it's probably worth about 310. So yeah. And and there's, there's this idea of recency bias in, in, uh, in, um, financial economics, where you look at something that's happened recently and you give it more weight than you otherwise might have. And people look at Florida mm-hmm. after 2008 and Florida got decimated during the 2008 downturn. D.C. fared pretty well. So I imagine there are a whole lot of people who are thinking D.C. is a much safer place to buy a house than mm-hmm. Florida. Um, but if you really think about it for just a couple minutes, it becomes obvious that because Florida was hit so hard, prices were probably depressed. And assuming you thought that uh, that the, the market was going to recover, Florida was an obvious choice. And so, again, you used your your, your psychology background um, to, to really be able to make good financial decisions, whereas other people just kind of went with their gut. Mm-hmm. And we all know, like you said yourself, mm-hmm. um, your gut always doesn't always make the best decisions. Right. And so I would say the Florida house I am proud of, um, you know, uh, you know, you got to celebrate your wins, but even in going to Florida, I just added a little bit more extra, um, piece to it was in Florida near the university, there's lots of gated communities and a lot of the gated communities have an HOA. So during the economic downturn, when the houses became vacant and they went into foreclosure, they still had the HOA to like mow the lawn. Well, where I bought, it was in a non HOA community and those are not as common. And in 2011, when I was looking at houses, it looked like a war zone. I mean, the grass was three, four feet tall in all these areas. And, you know, the houses were not kept and it just looked horrible. So I I went and looked at the data, though, the the neighborhoods in a good location. Um, And so traditionally, that neighborhood is about at or maybe 5% above the median house price uh, for the city or for the county. And what happened is during the downturn, it ended up being about 22% below the median. And I think the reason was because there was no HOA to mow the lawns. It just looked awful. And so my prediction was, okay, if I buy now, when things do recover, I'm predicting that this neighborhood will recover faster than the other ones because it'll eventually go back up to the median. Um, whereas, and, and that's what happened. So it took about eight years. So not only did that recover, but it recovered back up to the median where it should be. And so when I, I, I ran some numbers, and so as far as appreciation, you know, from if you add 16 on a 95, so 111, 111 to like 310, it's, a, it's an increase of about 180%. Well, what other people were buying, you know, where there's HOAs, the increase was about 100%. You know, they still made money and prices still went up, but in that neighborhood basically did the best um, out, of, out of all of them because of that thing. And Again, when I was buying that neighborhood, people were like, what are you doing? Like, this is not a good idea, you know, so. Okay, so let's talk about uh, you're in Florida for what? Was it six years, seven Uh, years? Four years. 
Four. Oh, only four years. Okay. So you buy this house. When you bought the house, uh, it sounds like you were still several tens of thousands in debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you were building equity in the house, um, mm-hmm. but you had a job that had a relatively low salary. You did have some other benefits that were great. You were kind of putting away for your retirement. You had a big match, um, but you weren't generating a lot of, I presume, disposable income. So fast forward to four years later when you're like getting ready to, to take the next step in your life, where are you financially? Are you still largely in debt? If not, how did you get out of debt or what, what, did, it, what did things look like at that point? Um, so we, you know, we started at zero, we moved to Florida. Um, the housing market was pretty flat. I kind of feel like 07 to 2014 and I was making steady. So now remember, I still have the house in Colorado, so that's getting rented out. And then now I'm in Florida and then I'm teaching at a university in Florida, but I ultimately want to teach a uh, community college. So I interview and I accept a job in Hawaii. So I got a job, um, at a community college on the Island of Kauai. You can figure out which one it is. And um, I won't say the name. And um, what had happened was, is basically during that four years, I, I made a decent, um, t- took a decent chunk out of my student loans, but I didn't pay it off by any means. And then my wife paid off all of her kind of debt. She had student loans. And then we were able to save up some cash. We had about 30 grand in our checking account. So then when the opportunity came for us to move, we could do it. And a lot of people said, oh, you can't move to Hawaii. It's too expensive. And it's like, well, we were kind of saving our pennies to give us more flexibility. So then we, we did move. And so basically we went from, you know, having the rental in um, uh, Colorado and then having the house in Florida. And when things really started to change, it was 2015. And I think that's kind of when the housing market really started to kind of like take off. You saw some some positive movement in 13 and 14, but 15 is kind of like, from my experience, is when it kind of took off. And, um, and in moving to Hawaii, uh, they didn't, it wasn't as bad as Florida, but the housing in Hawaii, it took a lot longer to recover. So in 2015, Florida, I don't want to say is like fully recovered, but it had a very strong comeback in 2015. 2015 in Hawaii, it's still kind of lagging. And so there's still opportunity. And so basically, uh, I wanted to teach community college and it'd be a good resume booster. I was I went to uh, Kauai once, and it was one of those places where you're like, hey, if you ever have, have an opportunity to, to live somewhere where, you know, be on vacation, um, you know, take the opportunity. So so I asked my wife, hey, you want to quit your job and move to Kauai? She said, yes. <laughs> so do I. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. 
This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's Military Appreciation Month, so I'd like to personally thank all our past guests who have served and all our listeners who are serving, deployed, veterans, or in the reserves. But I'm not the only one showing appreciation. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond with exclusive rates, discounts, and tools. This month, join Navy Federal and get $50 when you open a credit card. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. With 24-7 U.S.-based member service and resources for veterans transitioning to civilian life, Navy Federal is here to help you reach your goals. Head to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. Disclaimer, must join an open membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. Annual percentage yield 0.25% for membership savings account. $5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions. What if I told you that I, Mindy Jensen, the queen of budgeting, the personal finance fanatic, sometimes forgot to cancel my subscriptions? I know, it's horrible. $10 here, $15 there. My useless subscription bills could have taken my whole family out to dinner multiple times. Rocket Money can make all that subscription sadness suddenly vanish. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. You can see all your subscriptions in one place and cancel money-sucking subscriptions with a tap. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. Rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. Okay, so you live in Kauai. Did you buy a house in Kauai? Did you sell your house in Florida or did you keep it? No, we uh, we kept it. Um, we kept the house in Florida. We were a little bit unsure. We listed it for rent for fourteen hundred. There was mander. Uh, there was like pandemonium to try to get it. Um, so the house ended up renting for sixteen hundred. Um, and I was trying to figure out what happened because I was looking at the rents, and then um, it was just way more in demand than I thought it was. And then, uh, like six months later, I was looking at some of the reports. 
And apparently, I think Fort Myers, Cape Coral was like number one in rental increases in the nation, and it had gone up like 23% like in a year. And so uh, like 2014, 2015, around there. So basically we got, and then also for um, Colorado, I increased the rent by 500. I increased the rent from 1450 to 1950. So basically now we're getting like um, almost $1,000 a month in cash flow. You know, obviously there's expenses, but we got about $1,000 spread on the mortgage to the rent on two rentals now when we moved to Kauai. So we kind of have enough of a financial, uh, you know, buffer where we feel like, you know, we're going to do it. And it was more money and moving to Kauai is more money too. So it, it sounds like you learned uh, a very important lesson relatively young. Um, I, it's funny. I, I like to teach my kids if there's only two things you ever have to know about money. Um, rule number one, buy good assets. And rule number two, don't sell them. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I found that, uh, if I talk to a hundred people who are wealthy today, um, ninety-five of them followed that formula. They bought good assets, cash-flowing assets, or, or non-depreciating assets, um, and they held them for for a long period of time. Um, and I talk to a lot of people who say I learned way too late, and I'm one of those people. I was in my forties before I, I learned that lesson. Uh, you learned that lesson early, and and so it was great. And so uh, it, it's a perfect example of how buying assets and just holding them uh, can really set you up for financial freedom later in life. Um, yeah, thank you very much. I, I, I think I was born kind of patient. I think it's kind of my personality. Um, I, I didn't know for sure that that's the way it was going to go. You know, I was optimistic and I was willing to wait to see what, to see what happens. Um, so basically we moved to Kauai, we got a studio apartment for 1100 bucks a month. It was 332 square feet. Um, the landlord told us it was 450, uh, but I measured it and I was like, yeah, it's smaller than that. Uh, but we, we were within a mile of the beach, so we could walk to the beach every day. So it was a great life. We were there for three years, and I bought a house. Um, and we bought a house that had a basement um, rental unit, like a mother-in-law suite. And so basically, we bought the house um, for $603,000. Um, and what I did is I refinanced uh, rental number one. I did a cash-out refi, and so that gave me enough money to do the 20% down. And then it also needed about 50, uh, 50 grand worth of renovations. Um, there was some water that was getting into the basement unit, and it was a foreclosure, and people didn't know why. Um, so it was a little bit of a leap of faith when I bought the house. But um, I looked at enough houses where I was like, you know, nothing's risk-free. You know, it's, it's severely discounted, so I'm willing to take the risk. And, um, and basically what we had found out was one of the gutters was filled with leaves and uh, dirt. And the, the water wasn't draining from the gutter, so it was falling right next to the foundation, and it was just kind of slowly seeping into the basement. And so basically the bank probably discounted the house 100 grand um, because of water in the basement, and it was a, you know, about a three to $400 fix. So I bought that house too, and it took me a while to figure out where that issue was coming from. Mine wasn't clogged gutters. It was like massive, like the entire roof in one downspout. So mm. uh, don't go with cheap gutter guys. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, yeah, that is a $100,000 discount for a $400 fix. Um, right. I'd say that's a good choice. Yep. Very happy with it. And then, um, so the mortgage was like, uh, so Kauai is expensive. Kauai is expensive, but they have the lowest property taxes in the country. 
And so on that house, the property taxes are only about 1500 bucks um, a year. Um, you do get a little bit of a discount for it being a owner occupied. So yes, it is expensive, but the property taxes are so low. It's, and when you combine that with low interest rates, you know, your payment might be high, but a lot of it is going towards principal, you know, and where I grew up in the Midwest, I grew up in Lake County, Illinois, and the property taxes are like three, four, maybe sometimes 5%. And I'm paying, you know, 1500, you know, on a house that's worth six. And so it's like a quarter of a percent. So it's, it's way less. So our mortgage was like 2650 and then the rent that we got downstairs was 1600 a month and then so we're left paying about 1050 uh a month for our for our house. Or if you remember that you're making $1000 on the other two rental properties you are essentially right. living for free kind of yeah with all these rental properties. And right. so What did your salary look like in Hawaii? So I got a 20,000 well it, it, um so I went from 40 to 54. So my base salary is 54000 but they paid um, overloads pretty well, and there was opportunities for overloads. What, what so are was, overloads? Uh, those uh, above your um, regular load. My regular load was nine classes a semester. Got it. And then if I teach a tenth, I get an extra five grand. And then if I teach an eleventh, I get another five grand. Uh, so I was making 64000 but teaching two extra classes. So fancy, fancy word for teacher overtime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Professor overtime. Yeah. Okay. So you were making forty thousand in Florida with a mm -hmm. ninety-five thousand dollar house, mm -hmm. and now you're making sixty thousand dollars in Hawaii with a mm -hmm. six hundred thousand dollar house. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, How long were you in Hawaii for? So we were in Hawaii for four years, and when we moved there, we didn't have any children. And um year right around about the time that we bought the house, that's when we were expecting um Kind of our no, we uh, we had our my son was born in May 2017. Uh, we bought the house in June 2018. So when my wife was pregnant, um, then we started looking at houses. It took us 18 months to find the house that worked for us. So um, you know, yes, it did take a while, but you know, be picky. It it you know you can be, you know, and then we ended up with the house that we wanted. So um, but when we did buy the house, we didn't weren't super strong like that we're going to be here forever which i know is kind of an odd thing to say but um we're just like let's buy a house we can get an owner occupied rate even though this probably won't be our forever let's buy a house rent it out and then this will be kind of like our retirement house kind of a thing so even though i bought the house i was actively looking for other jobs because kind of like once we had had our child we were kind of far away from home and my wife was kind of wanting to move back to the mainland to be closer to her family so we kind of bought the house about the same time that we kind of knew that we weren't going to be there forever, uh, which is kind of an odd thing. But, you know, that's that's kind of what we did. So, so your 32 year old self set a goal or maybe a little bit before 32 set a goal of having four houses worth a million dollars. Here you are about what is it, eight years later? And uh, yeah, sure. About eight years later. And you have three houses now worth how much? Um, so at that time, uh so once we fixed up the Kauai house, we put fifty into it. Uh, it was probably worth eight, seven fifty to eight. Um, and then the Florida house is probably worth um, probably two twenty five. And then the um, the Fort, Fort Collins house is probably worth uh, three sixty. 
So, so you're close to 1.6 at that point in eight right. years as opposed to 10. It, it really, right. I, it goes back to one of my favorite quotes, uh, which is we, we often um, overestimate how much we can accomplish in a year, uh, mm-hmm. but we highly underestimate how much we can accomplish in five or 10. Um, and I think uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a good example of how if you had to go back and, and reset your goals, you probably would have set them a whole lot higher. Um, and it's a good right. reminder, I think, for, for our listeners that when you're setting goals for the future, um, don't underestimate what you can accomplish in five or 10 years. You can probably do a whole lot more than, than you expect. And if you set those goals high, um, worst case, you fall a little short, but it's better than setting them low and, and, and just hitting them. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Okay, so you're ready to leave Hawaii now for some reason that I don't think either Mindy or I will be able to comprehend. Mm-hmm. Um, Kauai is my favorite island. Mm-hmm. Uh, you decide it's time, it, it's time to leave Hawaii. Uh, how did you come to that decision and where did you go? Um, we ended up moving back to Colorado where my wife is originally from and I went to graduate school in Colorado. So I have a lot, I don't have any family there, but I still have a lot of friends. And um, she wanted to be closer to family and... Um, we, we kind of had California as a number two. We had Arizona as like a number three. And then we had um, Michigan as a number four. Um, I'm originally from Illinois. And so we were kind of looking at Western Michigan because uh, it's within a couple hours of Chicago where, where my family's from. And um, we got lucky and we got our number one choice. And so we moved to Southern Colorado. I got a job there. And we are um, an hour and a half away from her parents, and she's actually having lunch with them right now uh, on campus. At our, um, we have a we have a culinary program, and um, the, it's uh, International Cuisine Week, and so it's fabulous food, and it's heavily discounted. And so they're having uh, a poached salmon and um, French onion soup and creme brulee. So, so Ooh. she's she's happy. You know, she's hanging out with her parents. You know. She's with her four, you know, our, our son who's four. And, um, and so I, Colorado's tricky, uh, cause the cost of living, if you're near Denver, it's kind of expensive. The way that I kind of get paid through the state is it really doesn't matter where you live. Everybody kind of gets paid the same. So, you know, Denver might be a little bit more desirable, but my salary goes a lot farther if you can be outside of Denver. So we're about an hour and a half to two out, two hours outside of Denver and the cost of living is about 30 to 35% lower. And so that way my salary goes a lot farther. And so, sorry to go. Do you still get the same amazing weather that we have up here in Denver? It's a little bit better if I want to, we don't get as much <laughs> snow and it's about three to five degrees warmer. So um, the only the only time it might be worse is like August, it will be three to five degrees warmer. So if it's, you know, 96 in Denver, it'll be 100 in, in where I'm at. Yeah, but what's three degrees when you're already that high? Uh, But yeah, so I love that you're still looking at how far your money goes. And, you know, there's something to be said for a high cost of living area. Like New York City is going to have a different nightlife than the city that you live in. San Francisco is going to have a different vibe than your city. But you're also, and I don't know how to say this without sounding bad because I'm in the same boat, but like you're a parent. You're not going out, you know, partying every night and like your needs change when you have children that are depending on you for the most part. I mean, not everybody, but, you know, all of us here. And it's like, I know what city you live in. It's a nice city to live in. It's you get all of the amazingness of Colorado without the 
exorbitant cost of living on the front range that I have. I'm up in Longmont. And, you know, I, you said your Fort Collins house is worth 300000 I think it's worth a lot more now. Um, I don't know if you know this, no, but yeah. there's been a run-up in prices lately. Yeah, yeah there has. Yeah. Yeah, so um, so for where I live, um, honestly, you know, we're right at, right at the base of, um, you know, some of the local mountains. Um, they get up to about 12,000 feet. It, I mean, looking off in the sunset, it, it looks a lot like Boulder, you know, with the flat irons and all that. Uh, just, you know, probably a tenth of the price. Um, and, uh, my, the school district is amazing where I live and this happened by accident, but uh, it's pretty common for college. I don't teach on Fridays. That's normal. But the K through 12 system where I live, um, my son doesn't go to school on, um, on Fridays. It's a Monday through Thursday, uh, kind of curriculum to give the kids longer weekends. So basically I'm super happy because, you know, as a family, we have three day weekends every single weekend. Um, unless school's not in session, then we just, you know, don't have to do anything. So That is interesting. So last year, my kids went to two different schools and one of them had Fridays off and one of them didn't have Fridays off. Mm. So I was like, well, okay. Right. Where are, you, where are you people sending your kids that they're just off of school on Friday? I love this place. <laughs> you should move to Colorado, Jay. I'll help you find a house. <laughs> I mean, my kids, I could put my kids to work three days a week. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Oh, I've got 47 projects. Carl's on the roof right now doing solar. So if you want to send him on over, he can teach them all sorts of things and then send him down to Adam. Adam can teach him a bunch of stuff too. So how long have you been in Colorado now? Um, so this is two and a half years. So okay. we moved here in August, um, August, 2019. Um, we bought another house in November, 2019. So we bought a primary and we were going to rent for a year. Uh, we were renting, but um, the rental unit had, I think, some smoke, cigarette smoke in the floors. And we didn't really notice it at first because they really piled on the uh, the cleaner. And after a while, we kind of smelled, you know, cigarette smoke coming from the floors. So we kind of asked our landlord if they could fix it. And they tried. They couldn't. So we said, hey, can, can you let us out of the lease? Because the house smells like smoke. And they're they're like, yeah. So... Um, so they let us out of the lease. So I, my wife said, I said, all right, let's look for another rental. And, um, she says, how about this one? And I said, well, that has a for sale sign on it, not a for rent. She goes, I know, but I want to buy it. And I'm like, okay, well, how are we going to pay for it? She's like, well, let's refinance the Florida house. Cause at the time it was worth like two fifty, and we only, only owed like 70 on it. And I was like, okay, if this is what you want to do, um, it, it's a, the guy flipped it. He did a great job. Um, it looks like a Joanna Gaines, like farm style house. And, um, so we refinanced the Florida house. We bought, um, the house there. I, I kind of feel like Colorado is very cyclical in the sense that prices kind of spike up during the summer. Cause that's kind of when everybody wants to move. So part of the reason why I was able to get sold on it, uh, I'm usually in the habit of, I got to get a deal somehow, you know, and I'm like, well, this house is fixed up and it's fancy, you know, where's the deal? Well, what had happened was, is the guy who was flipping it, it took him 11 months to finish everything. And so he put it on the market in like late September, early October. Well, the summer kind of demand was gone. And so normally he would have to list it for like, normally I think if he listed during the summer, probably list it for 300, but because he was late to the party, he listed it for 280. And so we got it for 280. We had to compete with a couple other people, but we kind of just paid asking price. And I kind of feel like if he would have got it done, you know, in the summer, he probably would have gotten more. So I feel like I, I saved about 20 grand because, you know, we bought it in the fall. 
So you now have four rental properties in in uh, three different states. Is that correct? Four well, rental uh, properties? Three, three properties, four doors, because one of them Got is it. two units. The Hawaii one's two units. Okay. Um, and so uh, I'm going to pry a little bit. So you've obviously have a, a good bit of money in your real estate investments. Uh, do you have other investments outside of real estate that um, that uh, uh, that you consider to be long-term uh, 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 investments for your financial future? So I think about two years ago, I came to the realization that we were a little bit real estate heavy. And so I decided to start diversifying. And um, so we have about 200,000 in uh, retirement accounts. And so for my current job, um, uh, which is like mid fifties that, so uh, for Colorado, the pay is probably anywhere from like 45 to 55 uh, because I have so much experience and a PhD. I was on the higher end, you know, for 55, but um, 13.5% comes from my employer, and then 13.5% comes from me. So 27% of my paycheck goes into a, um, a 401A, which is essentially the same thing as like a 401K. And, um, and then we, the last two years, we've been fully funding our Roth. And so we've kind of been continuing to, to do that. So we have about 200 in retirement accounts, uh, plus the, the you know, real estate equity. Which is pretty impressive, given that, um, relatively speaking, um, you haven't had the highest salary jobs. You've been living in relatively high um, cost of living areas, um, but you've made good decisions along the way. I love the fact that there are a lot of people out there who um, who kind of put their lifestyle first and don't think about money and then find themselves in, in bad money places. Then there are other people that put money first and don't think about their lifestyle and end up not happy because everything they do revolves around saving every penny. You've kind of done a good job of, of, of finding a compromise in between. You make lifestyle choices, but you allow money to inform those choices and you make lifestyle choices that will also allow you to maximize uh, your lifestyle and your financial future. And so I, I think the the lessons here are just so important to anybody out there that's either starting out or, or into their money journey um, that has that struggle between do I live the lifestyle I want or do I save money so I can be financially free? You're proof that people don't need to, to make that choice. There's a compromise where you can really optimize for both. Yeah, I really like that. I think that kind of nails my philosophy, you know, pretty, pretty close. I think there's a, there's a compromise in there. And the only thing that I would add is, you know, with real estate, I wouldn't consider it to be totally passive. I would consider it to be more of a, a side hustle. And there's so many different ways you can make money in real estate. So I think when you do dive into real estate, you just have to think of the lifestyle. What type of real estate do I want to buy that would fit into my life that I would like to live? And so then this would be kind of like a good transition then to talk about now I live in Colorado and now I got all these rentals all over the place. So how the hell, so how does that work? Right. And so in Florida, I do have family that lives there. Um, and so I, I go to Florida twice a year, no matter what. So I have a rental house that's 30 minutes away. Um, so that's pretty easy. My stepsister is a real estate uh, agent in the area. If I ever wanted to have her, you know, manage it or give it to one of her friends, it wouldn't be a big deal. But I self-manage, you know, just fine. Um, and then for the Hawaii house, this is where it gets tricky. So for the Hawaii house, it is not passive. Uh, the house itself isn't really that difficult, but the yard is. Uh, it's extremely beautiful. There's tons of foliage. And it needs to be trimmed often. So I basically fly there three times a year uh, to do the major like landscaping, you know, cut things back. You know, the tenants mow the lawn, 
but I have to cut, you know, trees back, bushes back. Otherwise, it'll just turn into a complete jungle. So it is true. I do get on a plane and I fly to Kauai and it is work, but usually it's like a four or five day kind of trip. Um, I do half the day at the house and then half the day I go surfing with my friends. And um, to me, it's still pretty fun. You know, it, it's, you know, so you can categorize it however you want. You can say, no, that's work. It's not passive. It's, it's like, yeah, but I, you know, I, I like it. So I, it, I'm not a tax yeah. professional, but I believe yeah. you can probably write off those expenses as well, since you're spending more than half of your time um, over several days. Right. And so now you basically have a, not a free vacation, um, but certainly a cheaper vacation because it's now tax deductible in Hawaii. A- so, absolutely. So it's not free, but it's it's heavily subsidized. A, a great yeah. uh, a great reason for buying rental property in places not only where you go, but where you might want to go. So that, that's a, that's a little trick that that uh, that my wife and I learned a number of years ago that uh, that if you buy rental property mm-hmm. places you mm-hmm. want to go, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a little bit cheaper to visit. And then um, this past summer, then it was it was kind of our big trip. Uh, the timing was pretty good. We had tenants that moved out in May, and um, I don't uh, work in the summertime. And the last kind of piece that I wanted to do with the house is I wanted to paint it. So it hadn't been painted in probably about twenty years. So we occupied the home for six weeks um, over the summer. Um, I painted the house blue. Um, it took me about three three and a half weeks to paint it, and um, it was work, uh, but I took my time and. Um, you know, did it when I wanted to do it, you know, campfires on the beach, you know, surfing with my friends and, um, and doing a little bit of work, you know, on the house. And so, um, yes, it is work, but again, it fits in with what we want to do. And, um, and we have a minivan, uh, parked in the, um, backyard. So when we fly there, I already have a, I don't have to rent a car. Okay. I am going to argue with you and say that it is the littlest type of work possible to fly out there Three times a year you get to go to Hawaii. I hope you're going in like the winter time and not like August. But three times a year you get to go to Hawaii. You have to trim the yard. You know, if you need a break, I can hook you up. I can I can help you out. It'll be a sacrifice. But it's not like you're going there and cleaning out the sewer pipe, which is a way grosser job. You're cutting mm-hmm. down bushes in outside in Hawaii where the weather is perfect every single day. So it's all the people who are like, oh, I would never do work on my own house. Great. Don't. But I would be with Adam 100% and going mm-hmm. out there. And yeah, like Jay said, that's a free vacation or a tax deductible vacation. Yeah. If you're doing it to save money, that's probably not the right reason to be flying to another state to uh, to, to oh, whatever, tr- tr- trim the grass. Um, mm-hmm. But you're not doing it for the money. So um it's it's yeah it's a good thing so okay let's let's fast forward um and we're we're already at today so when i say fast sure. forward let's talk about the future um it sounds like you're doing really well you're very happy you've kind mm-hmm. of engineered a life that that you love with uh with um financial decisions that have put you in a really good place what are your goals for the next 5 10 15 20 years um from here um so, yeah, that's a really good question. I've really struggled with this because I kind of hit everything that I wanted to hit way earlier than I thought. So I'm having a hard time coming up with something to you know work towards. Um, I've kind of designed the life that I wanted. Um, the only thing that I could maybe want to 
I don't know, this sounds excessive, but I do like to snowboard. And when I was young, I didn't really mind the drive. You know, it's about two, two and a half hours, depending on where I go. And as I'm, I'm 42, um, so as I've gotten older, the drive is getting a little bit not as fun. And so I have been toying around with the idea of doing like a short-term rental, you know, kind of um, uh, south of Breckenridge. Breckenridge is a little bit too outside of my price range, but I've been looking at uh, Alma and Fairplay. It's about 30 minutes south of Breckenridge. And um, I've been kicking around the idea of maybe trying to buy a, a short-term rental um, that we could use and sort of, you know, rent out. And um, I don't know. I, I, I'm not ready to commit yet, but it's something that um, I've been thinking about. But I'm really kind of been struggling to come up with the next step. Um, so I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm right there with you. I have been looking in Summit County uh, just kind of randomly because I don't I, I hate the drive. It's awful. If you get up on Saturday morning, it's it's if you leave your house at five o'clock in the morning, you'll get there at like seven. But if you leave your house at 530, you won't get there until noon. It's just the worst slog ever. So I'm right there with you. But then it's like, well, when do I go up? And houses up there are, I mean, if for $400,000, you can get a studio apartment with an $800 a month HOA fee. For $2 million, you can get like an amazing house, like ski in, ski out. But I don't want to pay, like I want to pay a million or, you know, 750000 or $500,000. Well, I'd really like to pay 100000 but that ship uh-huh. has sailed. So Yeah, I actually, I had some land at 10 acres under contract in, um, in Alma. And the deal fell through because the listing agent wasn't completely honest with the condition of the property. Um, they said it was snow plowed by the HOA. But there was a 300 or 400 yard stretch right before it got to the driveway where it wasn't plowed. And so I had it under, I had 10 acres under contract for 125 and the deep, and I, I walked away from the deal and I, I don't regret that because, you know, if it was plowed, it would have been fine. But now when I try to go look, um, that was, uh, September of 2020. So just over a year later, now those lots are 250. So the lots have doubled in about 12 months. And so I was, uh, I don't know, you know, that one got away, but whatever, something else will come up. Okay, so I am going to say this to you, like I say to my husband all the time. He's like, oh, because he's looking backwards. Oh, I could have done this. I could have done that. Uh-huh. You make the best decision with the information that you have at the time. So at the time, you didn't want it for 125 uh-huh. and that's uh-huh. fine. And now uh-huh. they're more and somebody else got a great deal. And that's okay. You're doing pretty good. Uh, you're a teacher and you have $1.8 million in real estate kind of all across the country. So, he's a, he's a professor. Professor. I'm, so, I'm yeah. so sorry. Remember, professor. professor over time. That's his new nickname. Yeah. <laughs> ah. um, yeah. So I would say, you know, going forward, I would say the only thing is I kind of realized, I think I hit my limit as far as, um, you know, managing rentals myself. I could take on more, but that really would be more work for me. And I'm not, I want to, you know, I, I like my, my 30 hour weeks. I don't, I don't want to add more, more stress. So if I'm going to grow, I have to partner. And so I think I've come to the realization that I have to start, you know, reaching out and shaking hands and, you know, meeting other people to partner up because I am interested in growing, but I'm not super interested in adding a bunch of extra hours. I know, I, there'll be, I know there'll be some, but I'm not really looking to add on a lot of extra work. Okay. So I'm going to give you a research opportunity then. And I'm going to say <laughs> with 
with the Hawaii property. You enjoy that. It covers the mortgage. The rent covers the mortgage. Mm-hmm. And you get to fly out there three times a year. Um, you had mentioned potentially retiring there. That's not the first property that I would look at. But Fort Collins market has gone insane. It's so hot right now. You can sell it for significantly more than you bought it for. Does it cash flow enough that you want to keep it? Or could you sell that 1031 into something a little closer, which is a lot easier to do um, self-management when you're a lot closer to it? Uh, And at the same token, could the Florida property be 1031 into something closer to you as well? You are at the college, so you have access to a lot of students. Maybe you could have some student rentals. Um, I think that probably is the the next step is probably buy more rentals, you know, closer to where I'm at. And, um, you know, for the Florida house, it is probably my least favorite. But every time I try to get rid of it, the price goes up. You know, you can sell it at that higher price, too. (laughs) So um, so like right now it's rented for nineteen fifty. And I kind of feel like I always try to be like $100 under market value. So I rented it in June. Uh, the people t- occupied the house in August. So the market rent looked about $2050. So I asked $1950. It wasn't enough money. So now Zillow and the market is saying it should be more like $2400. Um, oh. So I'm locked in for the year. So I can raise the rent after. But every time I try to get rid of it, something like that happens. And I'm like, well, I guess I got it for another year. Well, let me ask Why? you a question. Let's say you were to sell it. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do with the money? That see, that's 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 the um, that's the million dollar question, right? Or at least the three hundred ten thousand dollar question. Yeah. And um, what was happening is up until that point, uh, my local market was so hot, I didn't want to compete with those people. So I told my wife, it doesn't make any sense to sell the Florida house because I don't feel comfortable navigating these waters with it being so crazy. So once things calm down and I feel more comfortable, then I would feel more comfortable, you know, selling the Florida house. Yeah. I I often get the question, should I sell or should I hold? And and my answer is typically, um, tell me what you're going to do with the money when you sell. And if you don't have a really good answer for that question, don't sell. Mm -hmm. That is a really good point. I like that, Jay. Um, Okay. So I would, another research opportunity is to start looking in your local area more for homework. properties that you want to buy. Yeah, more homework. You thought you were the professor. I'm going to give you homework <laughs> to do. Um, look in your area and see what you can get. Like, what could you sell your Fort Collins property for? What could you sell your Florida property for? Combine those two. Let's call Fort Collins 500. Let's call Florida 300. So now you have $800,000. What can you do in your area for $800,000? Or less, you could take those and put them into a couple of properties. You could have a couple of really big apartment buildings if that's something that interests you. You don't have to do any of this if you decide that, hey, you know what? I don't want to do a 27-unit apartment building. Then don't. Maybe you want to do 16 single-family homes or three or whatever. I don't know what your market prices are right now. But Mm -hmm. you know, can you make more money locally in a way that is not adding on top of your grueling 30-hour work week? Mm-hmm. And is still generating at least the same amount of money. Um, it's a lot easier to find somebody to manage your 16 properties in one location than one here and one there and one there and one there. And you've got to kind of look all over the place and 
I mean, finding a good management company is so hard. Doing three different ones is going to be even harder. So I would just, if you are looking to the future and wondering what's next and, and you know, kind of figuring out where you want to go, look and see what you can get for your properties and look and see what you can get for that money in, I mean, and maybe Fort Collins makes sense to hold on to. You sell Florida and buy something else in Fort Collins. It's still a lot closer than Florida, um, although it's probably like a four-hour drive for you. Uh, but you can find somebody to rent, to manage two properties in Fort Collins a lot easier than one in Fort Collins and one in Florida. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I think ultimately what's going to happen is I'll probably sell Florida at some point, and then I will probably buy my local area or Fort Collins. That's probably what will happen. The only thing about the Fort Collins house, I'm a little bit less likely to sell it. And I don't know, maybe you guys can chime in, but it's a double lot, um, but the house is in the middle. So I can build another house on the lot, but I would have to demolish the house that's on it. So labor is really expensive right now, but at some point, so it doesn't financially make sense. But, you know, thinking long-term, it's about a half a mile away from the university. I think at some point I might actually knock the house down and build two. But that's more of like a distant kind of goal. Okay. We will talk about that after we're done recording because I'm going to look up the actual address and see, get a little more information on you, uh, on that property for you. Um, I think this has been a super fun episode. I'm really, really excited about your story and all of your potential, but we're not done yet, Adam. We still have the famous four. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay, Adam, what is your favorite finance book? Um, so, so I think I have to kind of like represent psychology. So, um, this is a good one if you force me to pick one. So thinking in bets. So, uh, he's holding up for those that aren't watching this on video. It's, uh, thinking in bets by Annie Duke. And I'm actually friends with Annie Duke. I used to be friends with Annie Duke mm-hmm. and I love that book. So from a psychology perspective, for me personally, it was just, a tiny bit disappointing uh, because um, she does such a good, like she does such a good job of like breaking it down into like simple concepts. So at the risk of sounding arrogant, like with somebody with a PhD, I was hoping there was a little bit more meat on the bone, but for somebody that is not a psych major for people that started from zero, this is absolutely the best book, um, you know, in, in communicating uh, with that type of uh, audience. And um, I actually had a similar kind of experience as her in the sense that, I never really played poker, but I got invited when I was in uh, my PhD program. I got invited to go to a bachelor party. It was in Laughlin, Nevada, and um, we played poker, and I got third in the tournament. Um, so I won like three or four hundred dollars. And all I was doing was using the principles on judgment decision making that I had learned in graduate school. And I actually asked a few people. I was like, "Hey, is there anything to this? Like, do you think I could like pursue pursue this path?" They're like, "No, just all dumb luck. Like, you don't have any skill." And then this book came out and I was like, there is something to it. I knew there was something there. <laughs> She's a very smart person and a very yeah. good poker player. Um, but then I would like to talk about just a small progression. So Influence by Robert Cialdini, uh, if you like the Annie Duke book. Duke book. So um, I worked on some projects with Robert Cialdini in graduate school. Um, we had some of the same grant funded projects. Uh, my My advisor was at Cal State San Marcos and he had we had some joint grants from Arizona State so we were doing some of the same studies that he was doing in Arizona we were doing in California um, so his stuff is really good and then the third one uh, is Daniel Kahneman uh, uh, thinking fast and slow 
and I, I would do this in this order. Um, this is an amazing book. It's really hard to read. Um, there's a lot of technical psychology, but if you feel like you understood the first two and you want to make the leap, um, read the third one. This is written more like an ac academic. There's big words in here that a lot of people don't understand. Um, and so it's, it's still written for the non-academic, but it's probably the most technical. So if you can make through, if you can make it through it though, it's worth it, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to be work. Oh, I, those are, so I, I love Annie Duke's book. Um, but the two you just held up are two of my favorite books of all time. Anybody that reads Influence, or even if, if you don't have time to read all of Influence, there's a chapter in Influence called Reciprocity. And it is a chapter that is probably the most important chapter I've ever read in any book in my entire oh. life. So if all you do is pick up the book Influence um, and just read that one chapter, I think you'll find the book worth it. And then Thinking Fast and Slow is my all-time favorite book. Um, recommend it to everybody. And I, I'm not going to, I don't think you're right in that it's, it's that academic. I think it's, it's okay. written for some of us mere mortals to understand as well. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a dense book. Um, but I think a lot of people can get a lot of, out of that book. Um, changed my whole view on psychology and marketing. Okay. Question number two. What was your biggest money mistake? Um, I, um, got busy in Florida and, um, I wasn't paying enough attention to the rents in Fort Collins. So I let a group of students re-rent with no rent increase. And that was a huge mistake. By the time I finally got to raising the rent, I raised it from 1450 to 1950. And it really wasn't enough. The next year I raised it to 2200. So kind of what Mindy was saying, there was, you know, Fort Collins kind of took off and I wasn't paying attention. So I eventually, I saw it, but I saw it a little bit too late. Um, when I was in Florida, I was I had my new job and I was kind of finishing up my dissertation at the same time. And that was probably the busiest part of my life was like the first two years in Florida. And then after that, I kind of um, I slowed up. But, yeah, I, I wasn't paying attention to the rents and I, I should have increased the rent um, um, a lot sooner than that. So I think it cost me about 10 grand probably in lost rents. So not horrible, but. Not horrible, but certainly not something you want to repeat ever. Right. So I'm going to give a piece of advice for people who are listening here and say, if you own rental properties, put it on your calendar two months before the renewal process or the renewal time to look into what rents are, do some research, make sure that your $1,400 property isn't supposed to be renting at $1,900. There is a lot of debate and discussion back and forth on the Bigger Pockets forums about should I raise the rent on good tenants? Or should I just let it ride? And, you know, I, I think there's something to be said, especially long distance, for not raising the rent 25 or 50 bucks on the off chance that they might leave. And then you have to roll the dice on the next group of tenants. But if it's the difference between 1400 and 1900 and 2200, that is a time I would say roll the dice and see who you get if your current tenants don't like it. But, um, 30 or 60 days is what you need to give notice for. Sometimes, actually, sometimes it's 60 days. So maybe if you're in a 60-day state, put it in 90 days ahead of time. But keep up with your rents. I think that's a really good, uh, that's a really good point. Okay, now what is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? Um, so basically, uh, everyone has different goals. Uh, I'm currently teaching personality psychology right now. Um, personality is mostly genetic. We're kind of born with our personality and we just 
everyone's a little bit different on like what motivates us and what makes us tick. So I would just say, come up with your own goals. Don't come up with goals like that other people tell you you should have. And um, basically, if I was to add on to that, once you figure out your goal, then just reverse engineer it. You know, how do I get there? And then if each step seems too big, then you just break it down into smaller steps. And then when you accomplish each, each step, you got to celebrate your wins. And I kind of feel like that's what I've done over the last 10 years. Love that. Okay. Um, final question. What I feel like, Mindy, you should be asking this question, but I'm going to ask it because it's, it's my turn. So what is your favorite joke to tell at parties? Mindy's the funny one. She's the one that should be asking the joke question. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping this is funny. Uh, it's, it's a joke that I love telling at parties, but you have to kind of know me and know my wife to, to kind of get the joke. Um, I'm an optimist. Um, I'm, uh, you know, glass half full kind of guy. So um, we're in Florida and it's the summertime and my wife has to go to work in the morning and I don't like, I'm just gonna sit at home and, you know, work on a few things. And I drank a little bit too much wine the night before and, uh, she's getting ready to go to work and she's kind of just seen me lay on the couch and she's a little aggravated cause you know, she's got to go, you know, to her corporate job that she doesn't really like that much. And she opens up the fridge and she's like, how much wine did you drink last night? And I was like, you yeah, know, not that much, which is a total lie. And um, she's like, not that much. The, the bottle's half empty. And I look at it and I go, actually, it looks more like it's half full to me. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been better if you wouldn't have given the punchline away in the setup. Yeah. yeah. Okay, sorry about that. It's yeah. okay. I like it. I like yeah. it. So. What is a boat full of psychiatrists labeled as? I don't know. Freudian ship. <laughs> Get a little bad one for Scott there. Adam, where can people find out more about you? Um, so I do have an account on Bigger Pockets, uh, Adam Christopher Zaleski. So if you want to message me there, um, you know, I'm not really selling anything, but I kind of feel like I probably do have to partner with people if I, um, you know, want to grow. So I have to kind of go outside my comfort zone a little bit. Um, I am looking for a loan officer that is licensed in three different states. Florida, Hawaii, and Colorado. I've been doing this a little bit too long to be going with different people. Um, so I'm looking for one person that can kind of do everything for me. Oh, I got um, you. And so, and then the other thing is if anyone's interested in partnering uh, on a short-term rental in uh, Park County, just south of Breckenridge, uh, let me know. Uh, one of my ideas, I don't, I don't know how crazy this is, but if I was to do, you know, a successful short-term rental, I think I would still end up with about a hundred days of vacancy. And what I want to do is still take advantage of those vacancy days by using them myself. There's no way I could use, I could do hundred days of vacancy. Like I can't use that. So I was thinking as a partnership, my idea was to split the vacancy days and then that way it gets used and it's not, um, there's less waste. Love it. Um, yeah. So reach out to me if you're interested in real estate. I'm really interested in how psychology applies to real estate. So I could talk about that all day long. Did you get Morgan Housel's Psychology of Money book yet? I have not. Oh, that, I think you would love it. That is a okay. really, really, really good book. When you said psychology and real estate, I'm like, ooh, psychology and money. I really like Morgan Housel. And this is just a fantastic book. It just came out in the last six months, I think. Um, 
Okay, Adam, this was fantastic. I really appreciate your time today. This was a super lot of fun. Jay, thanks for helping out. You were good too. Thanks, I appreciate that. <laughs> but the star of the show is Adam. So Adam, thank Absolutely. you so much. Adam, yeah. it was great talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We'll talk to you soon. All right, bye-bye. Okay, that was Adam Zaleski and his amazing story. Jay, what'd you think? I thought that was great. I mean, honestly, uh, there were so many things that, like, he started with these insights as a teenager that a lot of us don't have until our 30s and 40s. And he, he every decade in his 20s, he realized that he should be buying rental properties. In his 30s, he realized that it's not necessarily taking the highest paying job. In his 40s, he realized that every time you buy a new house, don't sell the one you had, hold it as a rental. I mean, he's making these decisions each decade of his life that a lot of us are making 20 or 30, 40 years later because we just, we don't have the the knowledge and wisdom to make these great choices. So I love the fact that, that he was so far ahead of so many of us. And I hope anybody that's listening to this, that's in their teens or in their twenties or in their thirties is really taking heed of the things he said, because if you follow his advice, by the time you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s, you're really going to find that that you've achieved everything you've needed and wanted to achieve, um, and you're so much closer to your financial goals than you would have been otherwise. Yeah. You know, the concept of running numbers as an investor is totally second nature, but the concept of running numbers as an employee or running numbers as just somebody living life is not so second nature. And the way that he thought about his DC property or his, I'm sorry, his DC job at 67,000 versus his Florida job at 40,000. Honestly, I don't know that I would be able to make the same incredibly intelligent choices that he made back in my 30s. I mean, I say that nicely. I don't know that I'd be able to. I wouldn't have done that. I'd have been like, ooh, 60,000. Let's go there. That's more. I wouldn't make those same choices now. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was smarter at 30 than I am at, well, however old I am. More than 30. Right more than 30. <laughs> yeah, I love the way he thinks of things. And I hope that if you are listening to this, you are sharing this with your children, um, your your late teens, your high schoolers. This is a great episode for them to listen to, to start thinking about life in a slightly different way. Okay, Jay, we have spent a lot of time talking with Adam and talking about me, but we haven't talked about you. What are you up to? Um, nobody cares what I'm up to. I'm sure somebody does. Like maybe. I am here hosting this awesome episode with somebody that almost calls me a friend. There is nothing more (laughs) that I could ask for in life. Uh, I am living life in uh, a beautiful place, not too far actually from where Adam bought his first house in Florida. And uh, yeah, engineering my life, hopefully following the uh, the lessons that Adam laid out for us on the show. Well, should Scott ever slack off again, I'd like to have you back, Jay. Oh, I'd like to come back. Okay, Jay, should we get out of here? Let's do it. Everybody, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Money Show. From episode 251 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he is Jay Scott, and I am Mindy Jensen saying so long, farewell, a wiedersehen, adieu. It's 
it's Military Appreciation Month, so I'd like to personally thank all our past guests who have served and all our listeners who are serving, deployed, veterans, or in the reserves. But I'm not the only one showing appreciation. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond with exclusive rates, discounts, and tools. This month, join Navy Federal and get $50 when you open a credit card. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. With 24-7 U.S.-based member service and resources for veterans transitioning to civilian life, Navy Federal is here to help you reach your goals. Head to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. Disclaimer, must join an open membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. Annual percentage yield 0.25% for membership savings account. $5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions.